Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, focusing in on verses 18 to 21. The series is called Glory in the Church, and the sermon this morning is called Far Above All. I want to begin by sharing a story with you from my week. Uh, I went to the eye doctor this week, and I take my eye exams very seriously. I've had problems with my eyes in the past, and so whenever I go to the eye doctor, I'm looking forward to a clean bill of health. So I went to the eye doctor, and I've had major problems with my eyes in the past. I've had eye infections, uh, I've had ulcers on my eyes, I had allergic reactions to things in my eyes, and so because of that, I am kind of nervous to go to the eye doctor. In fact, I pulled up a few pictures of some problems I had with my eyes in the past. Uh, it got so bad once I couldn't even see any light. I had to just totally blacken out my sight. So here's a picture of me in the past when I had an eye infection and I just did anything I could to, to cover up my eyes because even light was excruciatingly painful. And that's just a sock hanging over my eye. And then finally I found these, which was like a more legitimate pair of glasses to just black out all the light because I couldn't even see things were so bad. So now when I go to the eye doctor, they say, well, we can do, you know, these tests as part of the exam. And I tell them to do all the tests. I mean, all of them, every single one. And you've been to the eye doctor, right? They sit you down and here's, here's where they, you know, they take you, they put this thing in front of you and they say, well, does this look better? Does this look better? And they've got other tests too. Uh, field of vision test, yes. Peripheral vision test, yes, do it. Color blindness test, you know that one, right? Here's the color blindness test where you got to figure out what number. They try and hide the numbers and then they try and see if your eyes are working properly. I say, do it. And then I even tell them to do that glaucoma test, the one where you sit down and you lean in and then they take this little air gun and they just, psh, they get you right in the eyeball. I tell them to do that one too uh, because I don't want any more trouble. Well, when I went this week, they said, there's a new test. I said, a new test? They said, yeah, do you want us to do the new test? I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. So I guess they take a picture of your retina. So you're sitting there and suddenly you see this like solar flare of light and then they take a picture. And so the eye doctor showed me what a picture of a retina looks like. I'd never seen one before. And so here's the picture. And just based on this, he can look into the eye and point all around and tell you if your eye is healthy or if your eye is unhealthy. Now, why do we go and get all these tests done? Why do we get our vision checked? Why do we let them you know, shoot a little blast of air at our eyeball? Well, it's because we don't want to go blind. We want to see. We want physically to be able to see. Thankfully, my eyes are fully healthy. I'm seeing clearly, and so I went home full of joy. Now, today's sermon is kind of like an eye exam, not for our physical eyes, but the Bible says that we actually have the ability to see things spiritually. And the Bible says that we are born spiritually blind, meaning we can't see God. But Jesus comes along and says that he can open our eyes so that we can see clearly. And don't you want to see everything that God wants to show you? Don't you want those eyes to be healthy and clear so that you can see the truth. Well, today we're going to see what God has for us in his word, but first let's pray. Father, we just open our hearts to you. We invite you to open our eyes, not our physical eyes, but what the Bible calls the eyes of our heart. Open our eyes so that we can see your glory, so that we can see everything that you want us to understand about yourself, about life, 
about death, about the next life, about ourselves. We just pray that you would reveal to us everything about your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I hope your Bible is open. And in Ephesians 1, I'm going to read some verses that are a review from last week, but they're really important to understand where we're going today. So in chapter 1, verse 15, it says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come." This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's praying for them, and he's thankful for them, and he's reminding them of the truth found in Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we see here, the first thing we're supposed to see here, you can write this down, number one, do you see the hope found in Christ? Do you see it? Do you see the hope found in Christ? God wants you to see it, He wants me to see it. When I say see it, it's a relational image. The idea of seeing God means that you know him in a certain way, in a personal way. And God wants you to know him personally. That's why it says here that he has called us to himself through Jesus Christ. God also wants you to know him eternally which is why the Bible here talks about the inheritance that he has for us in Jesus Christ. Seeing the hope found in Christ means we know him personally because we followed his voice, his call to his son. It also means that we can know him eternally because he has promised us an inheritance, an eternal kingdom where we can be with him, not just now, but actually forever and ever. Do you see the hope found in Christ mentioned in these verses? It says that, He's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus. One of the challenges last week was, do do you have faith in Jesus? Have people heard of it, of your love for the saints? And he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He says he wants them to know a wisdom of revelation and knowledge. He wants them to know the truth about Christ. And in verse 18, he says that their eyes might be enlightened, that their eyes might be opened to the hope to which God has called them, to the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. The Bible uses different comparisons to help us understand and see spiritual truths. And when it comes to heaven, one of the ways the Bible describes heaven is as if it's a fortune, as if it's like riches upon riches, and that fortune actually belongs to God the Father. And then he's willing to give it, to bestow it upon his children as an inheritance. The idea of getting rich, the idea of being loaded is something that we're all attracted to. We love the idea of having more and We're uh, uh, attracted to the idea of having it all. And so the Bible just grabs upon that imagery of wanting, wanting everything, wanting to be rich and says, look, God has an inheritance for us in Christ and he's willing to give it to us. Now, because um, 
We have these measures in place where we're practicing social distancing because we have a lot more family time. Uh, we're trying to find some movies with the kids to watch. And so this last week we watched uh, a good old movie from the 80s, The Great Outdoors, starring Dan Aykroyd and John Candy. And in the movie, Dan Aykroyd is a wealthy stock trader. He's got it all. He's got the car. He's got the ring. He's got the watch. He's got everything, the life. And he drives up to this, like, uh, this resort in the woods to connect with John Candy. And the whole movie long, Dan Aykroyd is just flaunting his wealth and talking about his life and looking down on, on John Candy. And then it becomes clear that he had an agenda because toward the end of the movie, Dan Aykroyd says, I've got a deal for you that's going to make you rich. You just have to give me $25,000 right now. And John Candy somehow decides that he's going to do that. But then finally, it comes out that Dan Aykroyd actually lost it all. He lost a fortune. And he was trying to actually take advantage of John Candy. He finally confesses that and says, I actually need help because I'm broke. Well, what a tragedy that is to have it all and then to lose it all. But when it comes to this idea of being wealthy, of having an inheritance, when it comes to this idea of being rich and loaded, the Bible says, look, that's kind of like what heaven is. I mean, it's much better but that's kind of like what it is. You've got these treasures, you've got these riches, you've got this inheritance, and it's yours in Christ. It's different from the riches of earth because you can lose the riches of earth in a day. Um, and the Bible says that God is the one who backs this inheritance. And because it's secured by him, we can never lose it. It's kept safe in heaven, and therefore no one can take it away from us. But listen, here's what that means. That means if you want to go to heaven, the way you get there is not by earning something. The way you get there is not by deserving something, but the Father has riches, and the Bible says he gives them to the Son, Jesus. Therefore, it's his, and then the Bible says that Jesus shares that inheritance with us free of charge. In other words, the only way we can get to heaven is if God hands it to us through his Son. And you should wonder, are you going to inherit heaven? Do you have treasure stored up for you in heaven? And are you expecting for Jesus to just give it to you free of charge? Or do you think you somehow deserve it? You somehow earn it? Because heaven is really an inheritance. You can write this down as you're taking notes. Only Jesus can promise me eternal life. Only Jesus can promise me eternal life. It says that this inheritance, that the glorious inheritance of the saints is something that we have because of Jesus. That's our hope found in Christ. The question we have to ask is, how is our story going to end? Do you know how your story is going to end? Do you know when you pass on from this world what's going to happen in the next life? How can you know? No one can really promise you knowledge about the future here. How can anyone promise you knowledge about the next life? But here we have the Bible giving us that assurance that Jesus can promise us eternal life, a hope of heaven. Only Jesus can bring us to God, and we have to have saving faith in Jesus in order to know God the Father. Has there been a time in your life where you came to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, where you gave your life to him, where you repented of your sins and turned around and said, I'm going to follow Jesus? I can tell you when that happened for me. I was a freshman in college, and I was in a heavy metal band, and God used the bass player in that heavy metal band. I was the drummer, to reach out to me and to just start sharing the truth with me. 
I've got a few pictures here from my heavy metal band days, so you can check it out. Here's a picture of us. Uh, that's me playing the drums at one of our concerts on stage. And here's another picture from the front of us doing a, a, a concert as our metal band. And so there I am playing the drums, and over to the left is the bass player who God used to tell me about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I don't know when or how you heard about Jesus, but that's how I heard about him. And I had grown up in the church. I, I knew some of the basics about church and about the Bible, but really if you had asked me what the Bible says about how to get to heaven, I really wouldn't have known. I, I would have said, well, I'm a pretty good person, and I think that I'm better than, you know, the worst people. So sure, I think I'm going to heaven, but then there were some verses in the Bible that really convicted me, like the wages of sin is, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so when I realized that I could receive eternal life as a free gift, that I didn't have to work for it, I didn't have to go through all this religious effort, you know, that God wanted me to be a person who feared him and who honored him, but that isn't the way that I'm going to get into his favor. Boy, I, I just remember very clearly kneeling down in my bedroom and, uh, and I remember because I actually had one of those water beds that were popular in the 80s. And so I, I knelt down next to my water bed and I just closed my eyes. And for the first time in my life, I just said, Father, forgive me for all of my sins, all of them. I said, I believe Jesus came into the world to give me hope, to promise me eternal life. And so I invited him to come into my life and wash away my sins. And then I kind of opened one eye like, did it work? It, did it work? And then I closed my eyes and I said again, well, just in case it didn't work, God, I really believe this. And, um, you know, an angel didn't appear. The earth didn't quake. There was really nothing supernatural. Um, but from that point on, I had, I had hope. I could see the hope found in Christ. Uh, I, I knew that Jesus had opened my eyes to see that I had an inheritance waiting for me in heaven because of who he was and because of what he did. And everything changed in my life from that point on. So the question for you is, do you see the hope found in Christ? God wants you to see it. The Apostle Paul here is praying and he's, he's grateful that those in Ephesus have the eyes of their hearts enlightened or opened up and he wants that to continue happening. So number one, do you see the hope found in Christ? Now in verse 19, it goes on to say this, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The second thing you can jot down is this. Do you see the power of God found in Christ? First, do you see the hope found in Christ? Second, do you see the power of God found in Christ? When it comes to the power of God, uh, the author here starts piling on all of these words to show just how amazing God's power is. He says, what is the immeasurable greatness, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Now, I looked into some of these words, and this is vivid language in the original Greek. These, these words just kind of leap off the page, and they're so powerful that we get several of our words today from these words in the original Greek. So when it says immeasurable or surpassing, uh, the, the word there is where we get our word for hyperbole. And hyperbole means to greatly overstate something, like over the top, an expression that just goes so far beyond uh, what is right there. 
And so that idea originally was something to just go way over, to just, to just go way past something. So God's power is immeasurable. It's, it's way past being able to measure it. it. It's surpassing. It's over the top, we might say. And then it says greatness, the immeasurable greatness. Uh, the word greatness in the original Greek is megathos, megathos. And we still use the word mega. We put mega on something and suddenly it becomes so much bigger, right? I've got a picture here of some things where we use the word mega to create characters in the movies. And this is Megatron, a Decepticon, very big and bad villain. Uh, and then we have Mega Mind, who has this, this fantastic brain. Uh, Mega Man from uh, my generation, and pretty cool, could shoot beams out of his hand. And so whenever we add the word mega to something, it automatically becomes bigger, right? So the idea here is God's power is great. It's huge. It's, it's mega. It says the immeasurable greatness of his power. The word power in the Greek is dunamis. Now we grabbed uh, a form of that word to make our word for dynamite. That doesn't mean that in the original world they knew what dynamite was. It doesn't mean dynamite. But when we were looking around for a word, when we you know, made dynamite, we thought, well, this word will do. And the word means having potential for strong action. So it's very appropriate that that would be applied to dynamite. But uh, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Those three words are just like exploding off the page. And then it says working. And the word for working is where we draw our word for energy. Uh, and energy gives us a good picture today of the flow of power. And in this setting, the working of God's power meant the spiritual power to take action. The flow of supernatural power uh, comes from God. And then there's just a general word for strength. So all of these words, one, two, three, four, five of these words all lumped together just show us how God's power is directed toward us who believe. It says, what is his immeasurable, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So do you see the power of God found in Christ Jesus? In this passage, it talked to us about faith, and that's our response to God's call. And that needs to happen at some point where we respond to God's call to faith in Jesus Christ. Then it talks about hope, which is where we have a promised inheritance in the future. And now we see that God's power is focused on those who are walking by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and who have called upon him as Savior and Lord. God's power is unleashed in the lives of those people. We need God's power to make it through this life. We need God's power to enter into the next life. We need it. And God directs it towards those who believe. It says in verse 19, toward us who believe. When it comes to God's power toward us who believe, we have to see that it's unparalleled. It's out of this world. It's bigger than anything. And if we have faith in Christ, all of that power is unleashed for our benefit. Do you see the power of God found in Jesus Christ? Well, if God has all of this power, then a fair question is, what is he doing with it? If he's got all this power, what is he doing with it? Well, you can jot this down. God defeated death in Christ. God defeated death in Christ. 
says in verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. When he raised him from the dead. So the gospel message is very simple. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He lived the perfect life, but then he died on the cross. They crucified him. Not because of anything he did wrong, but because of our sins. And then on the cross, he died in our place. And then it says on the third day that God raised him up from the grave. And this is described here as a working of great might, a working of great, tremendous, otherworldly, heavenly power. Great might. One of the words here for great might is kratos, which in Greek mythology, when they were naming their gods, they grabbed this word, uh, kratos, or a version of it, to name their god of power. And uh, Kratos had a brother named Nike, who was the god of victory. Kratos and Nike. And I like that idea of like this, this might, this godlike strength that was exerted when Jesus Christ was raised up from the grave. So God defeated death in Christ. And because Jesus was raised up to new life, we can have new life. We can defeat the grave. Now listen, when God exerted his power to raise Jesus to new life, he wasn't just taking one body and giving that life. That would be impressive because we still can't do that. We can't raise the dead. That would have been impressive, but he wasn't just raising one life. He was raising the author of life. He was raising the person who could raise everyone else. And Jesus makes an amazing claim. He says, in the end, you will hear the voice of the Son of Man and you will come out of your grave. There's going to be a resurrection in the end, a bodily resurrection. And that's only possible because Jesus Christ defeated the grave, because God raised him up. So this, this was a reversal of all the power of death, and death is a mighty foe. So God defeated death in Christ, and that shows his amazing, otherly, otherworldly, mega power. You know that the coronavirus has changed all of our lives, and that is why we are meeting online this morning. When it comes to how global uh, the globe is responding to this. I'm fascinated. Uh, here's a picture from the White House. They're having a briefing, an update, and the president is there, and the vice president is there, and key leading experts in their fields are there, and they're going to tell us how they're going to take this virus out. President Trump has waged war on the virus, and he sees himself as a wartime president now, and um, I do believe, I'm grateful for their efforts, and uh, I'm grateful that we are being responsible. I think that Hundreds of thousands of lives could be saved. If we had done nothing, it would have gotten way out of control. But here's a reality I observe. I think the coronavirus situation shows us just how powerless we truly are. When you have some of the most powerful people in the world, uh, when you have a country that has the strongest military and the biggest economy and some of the brightest minds and... Um, I think when you see what's happening, you see how truly powerless we are. We had a deacon and elder meeting earlier this week, and on the way out, one of our deacons said to me, can you believe a pebble did all of this to the world? Something so small. And I thought, that's such a funny illustration. This virus is just, it can't even see it. It's just this pebble, and it brought our whole world to a screeching halt. The stock market crashed. Millions of citizens are ordered to stay home. Businesses are closed. No sports, no events, no weddings, no graduations, no proms, no conferences. Why? Because of a pebble. 
because of a pebble. And the strongest people are unleashing all these resources to try and defeat just one cause of death. Just one. And yeah, the day will come soon where they announce we did it. I'm not impressed. I'm surprised at just how powerless we truly are. What about the other causes of death? When are we going to get after those? This is a really hard truth to face. But all of the efforts of everyone in the globe right now will delay many deaths and prevent none. None. Zero deaths will be prevented by the entire world banding together and giving it our all. All we will end up doing is pushing the inevitable up the road. Not one person will be saved from dying in the end. Not one. And when I reflect on that, I I kind of want more for my tax dollars, if I'm honest. I I want more than just eliminating one cause of death. When When is the defeat death entirely act going to be brought to the floor? Uh, I'm glad that they're saying there could be some checks in the mail for us to help us in this time of need. When am I going to get my check for eternal life? Uh, When is that coming? They can't. They don't have the power to do that. But the great news is this. Jesus can. Jesus can. He has that power over death. Do you see how when it comes to power, there's many ways that we can measure power and strength. And yes, there's the physical, there's the brute strength. How much can you bench, right? There are physical tests of power. How far can you run? Um, How how high can you jump? There there are these tests of right strength and power. But when it comes to power, defeating death is one of the strongest things anyone can do. And the Bible is clear. God defeated death in Christ. Wow. 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 You can write this down too. God defeated death in Christ and God enthroned Christ far above all. You can write that down. He didn't just defeat death, meaning raise Christ up, but he also enthroned Christ far above all. So it goes on to say this. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So it says here first that Jesus was brought up to heaven. That refers to the ascension. When eyewitnesses saw Jesus not only come back from the dead, uh, but after several days, they watched him to to ascend up to the right hand of God in heaven uh, at the right hand of the Father. That means they share in the rule of the entire universe. And there were angels there too. And the angels said, what are you looking at? He's going to come back in glory too. Go get to work. So that's called the ascension. And the fact that Jesus is now enthroned above all means that God has given him all authority. All authority on earth and all authority in heaven. It's all his. He seated him at the right hand in heaven. We have a picture of one of the most famous thrones in the world here. Uh, This is the throne in Asgard. This is uh, Thor's throne, the throne of Odin. And it's beautiful. It's it's golden, it's amazing, and wow, that's, it's an amazing throne, but uh, God's throne is bigger and better, and Jesus is seated at that place in the heavenly realms. He's alive right now, and he's ruling. That's power. 
It says that he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Then it says in verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So this is over every other form of authority, power. It's just every word here, the power, the dominion, the authority. He's over every single other authority. There is no higher appeal than where Jesus is sitting right now. No one is over him. No one outranks him. And then it says, and above every name that is named, every name, there is no one who outranks him. There is no one who's greater than him. And then it says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There will be no period in history where anyone does ascend to a higher place than Jesus. He has the best seat in heaven. He has the highest rank and role, and no other person in no other age will ever surpass him. That is power. God defeated death in Christ and raised him up. God enthroned Christ far above all, far above all. We're looking here at how power can take on more of an authoritative tone, more of an authoritative image. Uh, The Supreme Court has tremendous power. They don't literally come into your living room and, and change anything about your life, but one decision they make could affect hundreds of years and millions of people. And it's that kind of power that's kind of featured here. Jesus has uh, the power, the legislative, the executive, the judicial power over the whole cosmos. It's all his. He's far above all. And he's far above all in dignity, which means he surpasses all rivals. And in duration, which means he's going to outlast everyone. These are other ways that we can measure power. Where do you rank in in terms of you and other people? And how long can you keep your power? The duration of doing something strong uh, is one way to measure the strength of that person. And the length of this person's reign shows just how much power they have been given. And when it comes to both, Jesus surpasses all rivals. He's above every name that is named or that ever will be named. There's a lot of names in the world, a lot of big names, a lot of popular and famous names, big timers, celebrities, billionaires, experts, athletes, lots of names. LeBron James, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. Everyone knows them. Some people are known just by one of their names. Ellen, Oprah, Madonna, Prince. Just say one name and everyone knows who they are. And what we find in the Bible is that The name of Jesus is greater than every other name. Not only in this age, but in every age. And not only for this period, forever and ever and ever. Do you see, do you see it? Do you see the supreme power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? Sometimes Jesus would ask people a question. And one of the questions he would ask is, who do people say I am? And I would ask you that question. Who do you? Who do you say he is? Who who do you say he is? Do you say that he is the mightiest person who has ever lived, who whoever will live? That only in Jesus is there power over death? That he is the crown king of kings and lord of lords, one of a kind, and your only hope of entering heaven forever? Is that who he is to you? Because that's what the Bible says. One last question. You can jot this down. Has God's power transformed you? Do you see it? Do you see the hope found in Christ that only Jesus can promise you eternal life? Do you see the power of God found in Jesus Christ? That God defeated death in Christ? That God enthroned him far above all, above everything? And has that power transformed you? Because 
This is written to a church. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm grateful that you've seen it. I'm grateful that I've heard of your faith. Can people in your life say that they've heard of your faith? Have you publicly testified that you have put your faith and your hope squarely in the one who is above all, far, far above all? This is the hope found in Scripture. And if your eyes are opened, you can see. If the light of the world opens your eyes, you can be saved. You can know God. You can live with confidence through the darkest days. You can face the future without fear because it's God's power that is flowing straight into your life. And he has an inheritance for you that will last forever and ever. And the one who has all power and authority is holding it securely. Hey, is that your faith? Is, is that your hope in the very power of God found in Jesus Christ? I want to close by giving you a chance to respond to the message you've heard. I want to give you a chance to put your faith in the one who is far above all. So let's close our eyes and let's respond to God, respond to what we heard in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made Jesus Christ the Lord of the living and the dead, that you have raised him up and defeated death, that you have placed him on the throne where he will rule forever and ever. And Lord, I know there are some who are watching this service right now, and maybe they've heard about Jesus or maybe they've never heard about Jesus. Maybe they have a right relationship with you and they're reminded of this precious truth, but maybe they realize that they have never put their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. They don't have the hope. And those people who know them best wouldn't say they are Christians. Father, I pray right now that there would be some who are just talking to you honestly, humbly. And I pray that they would say something like this, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Forgive me for all of my sins. Say that. Say that in your own heart. Say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. Say, Jesus, I believe you rose again. Say, Jesus, I believe that you live in heaven with all power. Take away my sins and promise me a place in heaven forever and ever and ever. Father, I just pray for those who are lifting their hearts up to you right now. Remind them that you have said you will never leave them, you will never forsake them. Fill them with hope, fill them with joy. And I pray that they would cling to these promises even through the darkest days because you are in total control. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You are loved.